0: Forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in to tonight, tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah.
1: The way I'm going to start is to say welcome. Thanks for being here. It's so good to see you all. I feel like I've been bugging all of you for months to be here, so I appreciate (laughs) that we can all get together. Um, I'm going to go around the table here and ask you to introduce yourself on the microphone. Tell us uh, somewhere that the listener may have seen your name on their television. And, Michelle, let's start with you.
2: I am Nichelle Tramble-Spellman. My most recent credit is a new series for Apple TV+, Plus that will premiere in the fall, starring Octavia Spencer, Lizzie Kaplan, and Aaron Paul. Previous to that, my uh, credits were The Good Wife, Justify. And a few shows that were on for a year uh, Network TV that I love them all Uh, Mercy, Harper's Island um, And uh, Women's Murder Club, which is my first job
1: Yeah, that was early on, right? Mm -hmm. I remember that Mm -hmm. show
3: Um, Great, David My name is David Radcliffe I am a member of the Writers with Disabilities Committee at the Guild Um, I was selected for the Disney writing program And through that program was placed on my first show The Rookie on ABC, starring Nathan Fillion um, and now I'm on a show on Netflix that I have to be very careful about talking about.
1: Um, this is a new thing these past couple years. Very, People can't talk about yeah. what they're doing. It's a very
3: new thing. By the time this podcast goes out, that may have already been... Sure. been finished, so I All could right. be available. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is
1: also a job interview. You mm-hmm. should know.
4: <laughs> um, <laughs> um, hi, I'm Lindsay Rosen. Uh, you're going to get to see my name on your TV screen for my first primetime credit this next year. I'm actually writing on the writing staff of a new show for NBC called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, which will be on starting Sundays in February. Um, but I've written um, a lot of pilots uh, that have died slow development deaths, mm-hmm. which is a really fun way to go. Um, I also um, created a musical called Cruel Intentions the Musical which uh, is still running it was touring the country and it's going to be at the Edinburgh French Festival in Crazy. August and through that I actually got to write the Cruel Intentions TV pilot co-write which was incredible um, and I also wrote a, a YA novel called Cherry uh, which came out a few years ago from Simon & Schuster Right uh, and and Nichelle you
1: started as a novelist as well is mm-hmm. that right?
4: I did a crime series for Random House two book series
2: uh, set in the San Francisco Bay Area the first book The Dying Ground was published in 2000 2001, and The Last King was published in 2004.
1: And does this precede your TV writing career? Yes.
2: Yes, so let's, because let's, I started TV yeah. in 2007.
1: Oh, interesting. So yeah. let's talk about that for, for both of you, um, and then we'll, we'll get to your breaking in as well, David, but was was it always just the goal to write? you had stories to tell you wanted mm-hmm. to get them down? was the eventual goal TV and film like how how did that start and why novels first? Uh, and Michelle, let's start with you. I
2: started with I you know did a lot of freelance work in the Bay Area, music magazines, um, just you know small, newspapers, things like that. And then I wrote short stories, that whole route, and, you know, did the first novel that stays in the drawer, mm-hmm. and then um,
1: moved was on. that a, And I apologize, I'm going to interrupt everybody a lot, because <laughs> I like to dig in on some of these details. <laughs> but was that first novel also a crime thing?
2: No, not at all. No, it was um, just the easy four friends,
1: <laughs> you know. But <laughs> it seems like you were just grabbing writing opportunities. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you know where you wanted that to lead and, and were you always a writer or was there something that I'll made you say, a writer. I can do this? No, always okay. a
2: writer. Even when I was on book tour for, with the first novel, my, um, second grade teacher showed up and she talked about me, um, bringing my stories for show and tell. I love so it. I didn't remember that, but mm-hmm. yeah, it was, mm-hmm. it was, I was always aiming that way, but it, books were the end result. Mm-hmm. When I started,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and you did you think that like this is it? I will make you know I'll be a, a prose author. This will be the career.
2: Yes, until I got royalty statements, <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, I won't be able to survive. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so, how did the transition happen? And what was your awareness? Because I find like this with a lot of people. And Lindsay, I think you're probably the exception, and we can t- talk about why. But for a lot of people, it takes. Something clicking to say, oh, someone writes the TV I love or the movies I love. Like There's well, another I, brain behind I that. I knew
2: that. And I had friends who who wrote in television. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my husband's a feature writer. And I think Charles Murray, who you've mm-hmm. had on yeah, the I podcast, is one of my oldest friends. And when I was deciding what to do, he said, I don't know anyone who watches more television than you. <laughs> and he's like, you watch everything and at that <laughs> time there were still 12 daytime soaps on the air oh, and I think I gosh. watched all of those
0: amazing and wow. nighttime
2: TV and everything else and so he said you should apply to the CBS uh, TV writers program and that's what I did.
1: Oh um, interesting. Yeah. So what did you have to write to get into that?
2: I submitted a short story and then I had a um, a speck of SVU.
1: I love it. Yeah. Um, I miss writing specs. I miss mm-hmm. when people used to write specs. I mean, I feel like, and again, I've been banging this drum on this podcast for a while, but that is in large part the job of mm-hmm. the staff writers to yeah. emulate someone else's voice. Um, what was your SVU about? <laughs> Do you remember?
2: Yeah, you know, it went back to the book tour. When I was on tour and I was in Atlanta, there was a little uh, newspaper clipping that I kept about these um these uh, sex traffickers, these pimps that basically stole young girls from foster care. Oh, my God. And so I just sort of moved that into a story.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Was it, in any respect, you know, whether it's the, the topic or whether it was just a new form for you, what were the challenges to write that?
2: Just to pare it down. You know, working on a novel, you could just go and go and go and spend tons of time on the smallest detail. And it was just kind of being economical.
1: Makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that's. True of a lot of new writers mm-hmm. is right. There's there's a poetry to this almost. Right. right. Um, Lindsay, let's jump over to you and talk about um, your background as a writer and what led to was the novel the the first sort of big thing you had written.
4: No, it okay. wasn't. Um, I so I'm an LA kid. I grew up yeah. here, um, and I started writing from a very young age elementary school. But um, really, in high school, when I went to Harvard Westlake, there's a one-act play festival, so I started writing plays, and I had some beautiful teachers that really encouraged me in, in really important ways, um, as did my parents always were incredibly supportive. But my teachers stuck out, and I started writing plays, and I won some statewide writing competitions and um, national writing competitions in high school. And so my I'm a theater kid, theater background, um, and that was really the first time where someone other than people who already loved me was like, <laughs> okay, okay, maybe you could you could think about doing this professionally. Um, and so I went to the University of Pennsylvania. There's a great writing program there. Um, and I hung out at the writer's house with Al Ferris, um, who's still a <laughs> mentor and friend. And I was already at the time writing, um, you know, screenplays and and pilot scripts, Um, and a lot of other people at Penn were writing the Great American Novel, and I was like in the corner (laughs) writing my um, screenplay thesis. But I um, I wrote a script in college um, that was already, I was sort of being hip-pocketed um, hmm. at Broder, uh, the agency at the time. So this, was this
1: a screenplay, a feature screenplay? This display?
4: was a, no, it was a, it was a TV pilot. Really? It was oh, my, we should say, your, yeah. so
1: your dad was yes. it, is a TV writer?
4: Uh, yes. My dad, his name's Charles Rosen, okay. and you'll recognize that name if you watch the first five seasons of Beverly Hills Nano <laughs> He was the showrunner, um, and funny. he's the coolest, and has taught me, so I quote him all the time, my writer friends I work with, my dad's like a, just a wealth of writing knowledge, um, as is my That's mom, great. but he has just a lot of great catchphrases that come out. <laughs> well, um,
1: we're gonna ask you to lay them all on yeah, us as yeah, we go I'll, through. I'll
4: think of some, but like yeah, they just he's just he's just good. He's good at notes, he's right. good at um, like so he wrote something actually called the psychological primer for the young writer, and it was written when he was starting his career in like the seventies, but it's still so applicable today. Not about like the nuts and bolts of, you know, structure's important. Mm -hmm. you know dialogue's important but just how to emotionally and mentally prepare yourself for this industry that's gonna just reject you at every turn and you know you it's it's so crazy when someone passes on your pilot how that feels like a personal slight Mm -hmm. to your like well-being as a person as opposed to like oh maybe that script wasn't right for abc but it just feels like an an attack on you and i think that that's a foundation and something that's that's actually one of my advice now to, to younger writers or people starting is like find your people, mm-hmm. find the people that are gonna support you through success and, and failure, but really through failure. Um, that's even something in choosing representatives. Like yeah. someone told me that once, like, don't, don't pick the manager that you want to call with the celebratory phone call. Like who do you want to hear from when it's bad news? Like that's how you pick your reps because it's true. That's most of writing is rejection. That
1: makes a lot so, of sense. Um, yeah. but anyway, so you yeah. sort of like growing up with this and growing, growing up here, yes. you knew the language of I did. screenwriting. I
4: did. And that's some, um, I, you know, I feel really lucky to have sort of just immersed, um, In the Mm -hmm. universe, and again, I had some great teachers who kind of helped figure out how to take that into a professional level. But I do think you know, getting getting to be a young kid and teenager on sets was just an incredible um, education, and it's sort of like on on the go film school. Like you just get to be there and soak it up. And I love you know being on a set and all that.
0: That's great. So I
4: started writing in in scripts in college mm-hmm. and um, I had a script that led to a general meeting at what was ABC Family at the mm-hmm. time now Freeform and um, I uh, it was just a general and we were talking about what they were looking for and they mentioned that they were looking for a show about summer camp and I got all excited because I met my boyfriend at the time who's now my husband at summer camp and I was like <laughs> I would love to do that like I could do That's that great. show and I remember leaving and calling my agent being so excited and he was like you know like you're gonna do all this work for this pitch they're gonna pass we're not gonna be able to take it anywhere else and I was like okay and uh, mm-hmm. but I still want to do it. So he, you know, I put together a pitch, and I came back and I pitched them this idea about camp counselors, and um, they ended up buying it. So th- hmm. um, uh, that first summer, and I, I was so excited, I started writing it, and then that was the summer of two thousand seven. So I promptly went on strike with the Writers yeah. Guild in October. <laughs> so that was like, I feel like it, the whole like rise and fall, of uh, <laughs> yeah. breaking in, and so much excitement, and selling your first script, and then
1: oh being God. on the
4: pick line. It was a whole, it was a whole journey, really uh, quickly. And did that
1: kill that? Did it halt it momentum actually, for you? It
4: didn't kill it. It. It went on pause. I didn't sure. didn't do any work right. over the over the strike. But they picked it up. We picked up the project like after the strike and I wrote I got to write the script and, uh-huh. and then it you know, then it died. Right. So um and since then and then since then I've written I've uh, you know, maybe Eight, nine, ten network pilots that are you know in a pile in my uh, right, in course. my office somewhere. So I've done a lot of development, yeah. and uh, and that's fun. Like one kind of leads to the other, and um, um, I'm currently actually at the moment also writing a pilot for sci-fi right mm-hmm. now, um, based on a really really cool book series called Death Is My BFF, oh, which yeah. was actually p- published on Wattpad. Um, mm-hmm. If you know Wattpad's a great resource for for pub- self-publishing mm-hmm. online, and this is a super popular uh, novel um, that I'm uh, adapting for. Yeah sci-fi.
1: Good. We'll, we'll get into a lot of that. We'll dig into some of the other stuff. Um, David, tell me about your background um, mm-hmm. and leading up to you know, the, the fellowship that you wound up in. Yeah. Like, what, what got you there? What made you want to write?
3: Oh, well, I for context for everyone, since you can only hear my voice, I'm in a wheelchair I, uh, or use crutches. I have cerebral palsy. Um, which was really disability in general had not been seen much on t v when yeah. I was growing up. we were usually in hospital scenes, we were not the doctor we were <laughs> we were the problem um, and so but i didn 't realize until much later when I was studying film school um, and we were talking about race, class, and gender, a lot of the things that about representation that were coming up in those discussions felt true to me sure and um but my first connection with writing I think was around 4th grade. I remember I started publishing. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't able to do jobs that were really physically demanding, so I started doing a lot of writing and I published through Microsoft Publisher my own little newsletter called the Radcliffe <laughs> Journal and I started to sell ad space to local businesses oh where family God. members worked. And it was my first connection between commerce and creativity. It's like, wow, I think, I mean, and people seem to like the work. And I had a really great fourth grade teacher who also had us make. Storybooks and then leave them on shelves for other kids to quote unquote check out. And my book, my books were always gone.
1: So, um,
3: and I started writing about the X Files for a website, and they didn't know I was a
1: kid. So I was getting paid through that. That's crazy. Uh, So, um, and uh, what were you writing? That is so funny to me. I was doing like
3: reviews of of episodes. Oh my Um, god! I was really into that show. That was where I learned about you know that was the show where I started to put together and get excited by names that I saw. If yeah. Vince Gilligan wrote this episode, it's probably gonna be funny and weird. Yep. Um, so that, I remember that show specifically, and that was also around the time that the internet sort of started to become this force in how stories were shaped. Yeah. Um, and also really the internet becoming a democratizing arena for people with disabilities to be out in the world or totally. explore things and, and share stories. And, but unfortunately, to this day, there are so few writers with disabilities. I think you've had a couple of them on your podcast, mm-hmm. and we all know each other because it's, it's a group of like <laughs> eight. <laughs> um, and so some of the work we do on the committee is to try to create more opportunities for those writers, also get diversity programs to think about disability mm-hmm. as an aspect of diversity, the only diversity group that everybody eventually joins through age or illness or accident. Um, And so, so it was kind of a marriage of the creative work but also sort of a practical need of this is something I can do that is not only not impeded by my disability but actually probably enhanced by it because all great stories are about people that are pushing uphill against, you know, seemingly insurmountable odds.
1: Absolutely. And so has that been, even from your earlier writing, has that sort of been the the theme or the thing that drives the writing?
3: I think so. But I wasn't writing explicitly about disability until sure. pretty late. And then I started to realize there's so few of us getting the opportunity to do this work. If I'm not including a character with a disability in something, you know, then it's very rare. It's very unlikely that someone else will. Th- it just doesn't come up in rooms. It's right. not talked about when we talk about, you know, who could play this, you know, bank teller or this teacher or the boyfriend. Um, we haven't reached a point where casting sort of looks in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so,
1: so I, you you're you know sort of uh, making us have the conversation. Yeah, which I mean is necessary and selfish. <laughs> <Like> <laughs> selfish. It's, a, it's a good. I mean. People
3: people have introduced me as an advocate, which I always feel kind of uncomfortable with because advocacy is just sort of a you know if you're if you're hopefully a decent person, advocacy is just something that should grow out of diversity and 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 a need to tell stories, mm-hmm. and the advocacy kind of becomes part of that incidentally.
1: Yeah, I mean, so this is it's an interesting topic, and it's one that's what that's come up quite uh, a bit on the podcast in the past few years. Is you know. I'm a writer first, right? Yeah. Um, but especially before, you know, a few years ago, anyone who was not a straight white male able-bodied writer in a writers' room was often asked to represent yep. their their group. Yep. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if you That's want still, to and that speak to that.
3: still happens now, by the way. Of course. I mean, like we of course. <laughs> so, and also the power structure in a room. I can think of two showrunners with disabilities in television total, like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Ryan O'Connell and Shoshana Stern. Well, actually mm-hmm. Shoshana and Josh together for right. this close. Um, so much like as is the case with a lot of underrepresented groups, if you're on the ladder, but you're at the lowest rung and no one's really giving you the opportunity to, to climb and grow mm-hmm. and learn the business, um, the opportunities for you to get to a level where you can really influence what ends up on the board in the room it, are fairly slim yeah um so absolutely
1: um fingers uh, crossed michelle <laughs> what was the what were the first uh, couple of shows you're on uh, it was women's murder club
2: women's murder club was the first show and that was
1: interrupted by the strike also it was yeah
2: oh that's right yeah. um
1: yeah. what was your experience as a new tv writer on that show
2: um you know what i had a really great experience yeah. uh uh, Liz Craft and Sarah Fane were the creators so of the great. show, and they're still very good friends. And they were the perfect first bosses. Mm-hmm. They really were. They How's were in- inclusive and generous and... Um, those two things were more than enough, and it was a really good room. Uh, I think you're on staff with Gretchen and Aaron. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, they, yeah. Were on, they were on staff with me on. Uh, They're incredible. Yeah, and I worked with them again on Mercy. Oh, awesome. And yeah, I love them. Yes. So it's a little bit. It was such a good group, and it's you know when you end up in situations like that, and you have the opportunity to work with those people again and again.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um And let me. I I yell about this all the time on Twitter, but uh, Liz and Sarah's podcast. It's great. Uh, Happier in Hollywood mm-hmm. is so great, and if people enjoy this. They will absolutely enjoy that podcast. I love it. Um, Tell me a little about the learning curve in that room or the first couple rooms and like to walk into such a good experience may spoil you for the next one. uh, May also set you up to sort of learn your best practices in a room and the way that you are best you know, represented in a room the way that you best know how to behave in a room?
2: Well, you know, it was just coming from a situation where my voice was the only one that mattered. Mm-hmm. That, that takes some adjustment. And yeah. Gretchen was great because she sat next to me and I kept pitching the same thing, which new writers <laughs> always do. <laughs> and she just gave me like this kind of, I call it like a little big sister pinch, <laughs> like under the table, like that's enough. That's and it was... And then I was like, "Oh, I should stop talking. I need to let this go." And kind of, and mm-hmm. in my mind, I was thinking, "How do they not see the brilliance? This solves everything. <laughs> this solves everything." What right. I'm saying, <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, and it's just adjusting to the group is the biggest thing, and then you adjust Absolutely. again because the group yeah. dynamic changes from show to show. So what yeah. worked in one room might not work in another. Yeah. you may, you know be in a room where they don't want the lower levels to talk Mm -hmm. which is weird to me but (laughs) or you may be in one where you're expected to perform at the same level. So -hmm. you just have to go in and make the adjustment. And in life, I'm always a little bit quiet until I figure out what's going on. And I never am the person that jumps in Mm -hmm. right away because you just don't see the road signs and the sign posts and the potholes. So I think that works in any room that you're in. Just take a beat, get your breath, Figure out who everyone is. Figure out what lane you're in, how you can contribute, and don't put your foot in your mouth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that's good good for life, too.
3: Yeah, I was getting advice, really helpful advice, from the writer's assistant because the writer's assistant on our show had been on, I think, five other shows hmm. as an assistant and is super smart and a really nice guy. And I would eat lunch with the assistants, which I think some of the other writers thought was unusual. <laughs> yeah. um, but I hadn't been an assistant before. In fact, when I finished film school, everybody said, if you want to work in TV, you've got to go out for assistant jobs, which is how like 90% of people break in. And I kept going out for interviews and having really weird, circular, pleasant, but, yeah. you know, people would want to ask but couldn't ask. And so I just realized, well, that's not the path for me, but I see in hindsight the value, if you can get those jobs, of being an assistant first because there is a lot of sort of, like you said, these signs that you don't recognize Mm -hmm. until you're like halfway through the job and then Mm -hmm. you think, I, I said to someone at our rap party on the rookie, I said, "Now I understand what the job is now." <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then, we
3: got to the end and it's done. I feel like you know I'm
1: at the end of the game and I don't get to so play it. Back what from did the you realize over the course of that season? What was what were some of the big takeaways for you that you brought to the next job?
3: Um, well, I should say that that was an hour long drama on a network show, and now I'm on a half hour comedy on a oh, streaming yeah. show. So like everything is different. Um, And you're like you said, you're totally kind of relearning it as you go.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, there are a lot of if you've got a room where there are a lot of different voices and sort of an unstated, both explicit and implicit power structure. There there is, you know, ideally like a democratic way to run a space. But there's also you have to kind of kind of respect the system Mm -hmm. and you're not necessarily you might have an idea that you propose that seems to not land and then like four weeks later somebody else says the same thing that you said mm-hmm. and it ends up on the board it just didn't come from the right place at the mm-hmm. right time totally mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um some great advice i got from Bryn malone who is awesome and if anybody has a chance to work with her they should was if pitching the the right thing too early is as bad as pitching the wrong thing mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and so i'm trying to remember that now because now i can pick my moments and it seems like i'm getting more on the new show, I'm I'm getting more stuff across because I've waited mm-hmm. and I don't feel this urgency to throw all my ideas out, you know, right up the top. So. That's mm-hmm.
1: great advice, and 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 that may be brand new advice for this podcast. <laughs> nice job,
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: Lindsay. It seems like you've had a similar experience to what I have, which is to you know be on staff once and once and again, but uh, or now and again, but. Mostly you've been developing, mostly you've been selling stuff, and it seems like doing a million things at once. <laughs>
4: yeah. um, tell yes. me
1: about managing that, because I'm exhausted.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm also exhausted. I drink a lot of iced vanilla lattes from Coffee Bean. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's a little bit my just my personality. I like to have multiple um, kind of balls in the air. Again, as I was saying before, a little bit, like I think, it, you know, it's hard um, when things don't go well. It's nice to kind of already have other things in the hopper and kind of turn towards them. And I've been, um, I've been, I made it a priority, but I've also been really lucky to kind of be able to push forward in theater, in books, mm-hmm. in film and in TV so that they're, I, I like writing in all those mediums. And I think sometimes it's, it's becoming less now, but I think there's a, there's a, uh, Sometimes pe- people end up getting stuck in what oh you're a TV drama writer and that's it. Mm. Now I think there's a, a little more room to, to travel. But I like having being able to kind of turn from one idea to another. Um, juggling is hard though. There's not there's not enough ideas in the day. But I think um, the most important thing for me um, is is making sure that I'm wor- whatever I'm working on in whatever medium it, it's like lighting me up inside. Um, my manager likes to say if it's not um, if it's not a fuck yeah to no <laughs> because like you're gonna spend minimum a year of your life on whatever project you're committing. To like on death of my BFF, I'm literally coming up on a year from when I first had my you know meeting at Sony yeah. and still writing the script and you know it's just it, these are long these are long relationships with creative projects so I think that that passion for mm. me is is what it all boils down to and that's how you know even when you're exhausted um, you know that something that gets you out of bed in the morning uh, it's important
1: yeah and it I mean, can be a
4: grind if if it's not
1: let's talk about that for yeah. with with any of you who can speak to this is. It's hard to say no. Um, it's hard to say no to a job, to to a development thing. Uh, and so tell me about getting over that hump or or not, or, you know, going and doing the thing and realizing it's wrong along the way.
2: I think no... No's much easier for me because is that right? n- yes. Because n- no creates opportunity hmm. because you get something out of the way because the reality is you work just as hard for something you're not as excited about mm-hmm. or that you yep. hate or you don't respect as you do for something that you love. So you have to be excited about the level of work and commitment that you have to give to anything. You know, the nights where it's three o'clock in the morning and you can't see and something's <sighs> due at seven. You still have to do it. Yeah. So you. it helps if you're excited about it and that carries you through.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and so you also... The no's become easier if you do not answer in the moment. You Mm -hmm. know, if you're a manager or an exec or an agent or someone and they call and say, hey, there's this project, there's this idea. Or even when you're in the room and you're across from someone else's enthusiasm. We have this book project. It's great. We think you're perfect. They've said that to nine different people. But (laughs) in the moment, they really make you feel like you're the only one for it. and. If it's an interesting idea and they're excited, you could say, "Oh, I'm in. This is great." And I always say, "That's awesome. That's great. That's great." And then I take 24 hours a week, whatever, to answer. But mm. that was something I had to learn to do to not respond in the moment.
1: That's really smart. I think. Yeah, that's great.
4: I also think it is a weird feeling because when you're when you're young and you're breaking in and you're just trying to get like, get, let me get any meeting. Yeah. Just let me take any meeting. I'll do any job. I'll do anything. And then when that starts to when you start to get some traction and now you're in the incoming call business and you get a manuscript and that like I you know that's so exciting that's like wow like Mm -hmm. I'm on some list somewhere someone who I don't know knows my name someone like me how did that even happen so I think exactly what you're saying is right on like it you you have to start. I am a peop, you know want to be a people pleaser and I just you just want to say yes to everything and it is a really weird muscle that I'm I'm getting better at exercising now because there aren't enough hours. But like you know something comes in and you're like wait I'm really gonna turn this down. Like, I mm-hmm. worked so hard to get this and now I'm gonna say no. Like who am Mine. I? Like yeah. I don't you know I, you want every job you can get, but I think the no is really powerful. And then you have yeah. to get over
2: the feeling of it will be the last no. Yeah. You have to think <laughs> right. oh no one else is going to ask me ever again if I say no to them. And that's something to conquer mm-hmm. because it's not true if you're working hard, making the relationships <laughs> and you're good. Yeah. Um, but it feels like it in the moment. Yes, absolutely. At, after years of struggle, it feels like, oh, this is the only opportunity that's going to come.
1: So in those let's let's break this apart for a second. So in those 24 hours, you know, after someone says, do you want to do this or, or in however long it takes you to consider whether you want to do it? What are you looking for in a new project? What, what's other than, oh, fuck yeah, you know, which I think is a great, like, what's my instinct towards it? And if I can be that kind of excited, that's awesome. But beyond that, what are the things you consider? A great
2: character. Mm-hmm. Because the premise will lose steam for me. Mm-hmm. So if it's great character, great characters. And then I just, if I'm thinking about it hours afterwards, if I wake up the next morning and it's crossed my mind, I um, sit and talk with Malcolm and kind of, you know... Um, Batted around with him and say, oh, yeah, they get, someone came to me with this the other day. What do you think about this? And if he's on his computer and he doesn't really look up,
0: <laughs> you
1: know,
2: and then oh if he's gosh. like, oh, wait, what's that? And then we start talking about it a little bit. And then I just sit and think about it. And if it's something that I start to think about and then my mind wanders, mm-hmm. there you go.
3: Yeah. I, I know that the show I'm on now um, is... I believe, and I feel it every day when I come into work, like we're really pushing forward a social good like it it feels mm-hmm. really nourishing to do that, and I feel like I'm learning a lot every day. We have different experts come in um, and that's I'm kind of realizing like I don't know if that's a brand, but I would love <laughs> to do that kind of work for forever, whether it's comedy or drama, the yeah. kind of stuff that you really feel is not just fulfilling for you but potentially fulfilling for an audience or getting people to see you know, underrepresented groups in different kinds of ways, in different sorts of jobs and forms. So I think that's the kind of stuff that I want to start to steer towards. And I wouldn't have necessarily said that when I was still in a phase of like, yes, I'll take anything. Right.
4: Absolutely. (laughs) I also agree with connecting with the main character because a lot of, especially when you're working with adapting a novel, mm-hmm. a lot of um, I always feel like you have to take all, like the DNA, if it's good, the DNA is strong, but a lot changes in the adaptation process, so you might like this super cool, like this mm-hmm. one moment in the opening and it's really badass, but it's not going to then end up working in the script for whatever reason, so really the, the the kernel of the idea gets very small, and so that's important that that's exciting and I think, um, I, think I also, uh, something I'm, I'm getting better at now is knowing what my strengths as a writer are going to be good for because you get some projects and I'm like this is great I will binge this immediately but like I'm not the writer Mm -hmm. and so understanding like I like a lot of stuff in like female driven but specifically teenage girl driven and um, stuff that venn diagrams with mental health stuff and um like the lead of death is my bff it was kind of a small nugget in the in the book but she has anxiety and Mm -hmm. she deals with it and she even goes to therapy and so for me having you know a mental health anxiety and depression that was something i was like okay there 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 we go there's my in that i understand this teenage girl and i want to like hang out with her for hours and hours on my computer so knowing that that was gonna spark something i feel that um, same like extra excitement was always extraordinary playlist with Jane Levy's mm-hmm. the, the lead and you know, a bad, like young, but badass female character and all the stuff she's going through. And so, just being able to lock in like that, it's like, oh yeah, this is, this is exciting.
3: Yeah. One that of the things fun. that the Disney program kind of w- was really instructive and helpful was they sort of put you through this process where you read the incoming pilots and then you write a little paragraph that um, connects something in your life. perspective to that story so it's a little exercise you do and um, as I said I had come into the program as a comedy writer and then the showrunner of the rookie reached across the aisle out of interest in my script and wanted to meet and I read through the script which I liked but I also realized I'm not in my 40s I have no police experience (laughs) yeah I'm not (laughs) right I actually ended up learning a lot about how uh, police procedure works um, Uh which is for someone with cerebral palsy, that would, like, almost never happen. <laughs> um, but it was a—I I remember reading through it again uh, before the meeting and realizing, I think I know what my angle is on this, is that this thematically within the pilot was about a guy who, because of—in his case, because of his age, but it really was kind of a physical thing at the beginning, too, was mm. was— surrounded by colleagues that were younger and faster and cooler. And so he was, you know, but he had enough heart and and will to do the job that he was, you know, going to succeed. And I thought that is metaphorically a disability story, and the show just doesn't yeah. really know it. Um, that's great. <laughs> so that's how I came into the meeting, and I think if it's helpful, and I was able to do a similar thing on the next show, even though the next show was radically different. So if you can find some, that's why I think writers with di- disabilities it's surprising that more of us aren't outside of just general bias. It's surprising that more of us aren't working because (laughs) all these stories are connected to like, you know, just kind of pushing through and and keeping a smile on, you know. um. (laughs)
1: Yeah, almost every story we get on television, especially for a long time, has been an outsider story, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I do want to ask about, I think that's a great exercise that the Disney program put you through, especially when it comes to, you know, those of us who are having showrunner meetings and selling yourself to a showrunner as the right person for the show or to adapt something as the right person to adapt. Um, I want to talk about Truth Be Told for a second. I know we can't get into a lot of details, Mm -hmm. but What was it in that? Because it's based on a book. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it's based on a book uh, by Kathleen Barber called Are You Sleeping? And it basically is serial the first year.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's that's really like a in a story. nutshell,
2: that's what it is. Um, and the podcaster in the book was a smaller character. Mm-hmm. And once we got Octavia on board, we made that person, um, that character, the lead character. And then that allows for a different crime, a different investigation mm-hmm. every season.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Right. So what was it in this material that you personally attached to that made you want to do this?
2: The idea that is a little bit horrifying to me that true crime is um, consumed. Assumed as entertainment and mm-hmm. that you forget that there are the that there are true victims at the center of it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what does that feel like for the family to have their daughter's murder their son's murder their you know father's death um become water cooler talk
1: interesting yeah um how do you start to like that's that's a tough pitch mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you, but it's also a really appealing mm-hmm. thematic thing to talk about so how mm-hmm. do you start to work that into story And again, we don't have to get too deep into it because the show is not out for a while.
2: There's a device.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so this is something you
2: considered? Yeah.
1: There's a, yeah, it? there's a device that Great.
2: sort of works that in in a natural way, which we need it, you know, to launch the show. And then going forward, it will just be like whatever interests her. But she's a journalist. Um, uh, Octavia Spencer plays a journalist who's left newspapers. She's written books and, you know, been on the uh, the lecture circuit. And she's made quite a name for herself. Very, very, very successful. And she's using the podcast a little bit as a breather, hmm. and then this comes in.
1: Interesting. Yeah, oh, it sounds so good. I can't <laughs> wait. So cool. There are no dates
3: yet for this stuff, right? Uh, the
1: fall. Oh, okay, great. So it's right around the corner. Yeah, that's going
3: to be my response when I get a question about something I'm working on that has to be sort of guarded. There's a there's a device. There's a device. Don't worry (laughs) worry. about it. We got this. I like
1: it. Uh, Lindsay, let's talk about Cruel Intentions. Yes, please. Uh, What what the hell?
4: What the hell? (laughs) I know. I know. Yeah. Because this thing
1: sort of like blew you up for a a while. Yeah,
4: it did. I mean, I think so. Right before. Uh, so, for anyone who doesn't know, *Cruel Intentions* yeah. the musical is a uh, musical based on on Roger Cumble's uh, brilliant nineteen ninety nine movie, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and we pair we took I actually so okay backing up one step mm-hmm. I think a lot about as a theater kid as I mentioned I love doing things on stage that were meant for the screen mm-hmm. so actually in the fall of. Um, 2014 which is crazy to me that it's 5 years ago now. I did this thing with a good friend of mine named Harper Dibble where we just took some of our failed pilot scripts that were sitting in our drawer and and put them on stage at the Hudson Theater. We called it Get It Up on Stage. And we did that and I and um and I love taking things that are supposed to be on screen and putting them on stage. So one of the actors in that is a good friend of mine and somebody he got a call like in from from this guy named Jordan Ross, who I did not know at the time, and Jordan was like, I have a script for Cool Intentions, the musical, I have three nights at the Rockwell, will you direct it? And Jonah, my friend, was like, no, but I know who should call Lindsay, and before Jordan could get to me, Jonah called and was like, just say yes, just say yes, and this is one of my, d- this falls into my dad's category of advice, which is always take the meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some caveats to that now, but I think there's good, <laughs> always take the meeting is like a good rule of thumb, and so Jordan called me at 9.30 on a Friday night and was like, I have no money, I have the script, I, we have three nights at the Rockwell, do you want to do it and I said yes and so Jordan and I sat down and crafted what what the show is now which is the movie with pop songs so mm-hmm. like the 25 your favorite 90s pop songs and you know I, we were very naive we did not have the rights to the movie we did not have the rights to the music <laughs> it appalled hilarious. all the lawyers in my family yeah. um, but we put it up on stage at the Rockwell and it it, it, it there was something special that I, I mm-hmm. think just it was a lightning in a bottle moment of like this material and these songs really work and I think again kind of what i had been saying before I like. I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. I'm a '90s movie kid. I know every word to every pop song, and and I love, I love, I love it all. So we it ended up having a, a bit of success, and then we really hit. Um, actually, our second performance, Roger Cumble showed up with his lawyer, like Marty Bowen, um, oh Neil Moritz who produced the movie, and we were like, okay, great, this was fun, but they're like <laughs> about to shut us down. Um, but Roger loved loved the musical, um, and and became a a big champion of it and then now uh, you know co-creator um, of it and um, and he got on board and so we had a we had a landing in a bottle moment when in May Reese Witherspoon um, Selma Blair and Sarah Michelle Geller came to see the show together so 150 seat theater <laughs> oh um, and three of them were those wonderful <laughs> women and so that that really raised the profile and then it was off of that night actually the next night um, I remember Jordan turned to me in a parking lot after we just had breakfast after being on entertainment Tonight. lots of words that are like what happened to us for like a second and he was just like what's Catherine Mertoy doing today and so that led to um to the Cruel Intentions TV pilot, which we were lucky enough to write with Roger Cumble Dream Come True, <laughs> and then you know Sarah reprised her role and and Roger directed it, and that was an incredible, just deep end of the pool experience um, working crazy. with, yeah, a lot, and got and got, got to produce as a pilot, and uh, and that was pretty wild, but it was it was all from this little you know little musical in a bar, sure, and the and the musical still has a life of its own. We took it to New York, and it played off Broadway. Um, I got to direct it for uh, off Broadway first it ran for six months and then it just did a national tour so wild now it's going to the Edinburgh French um, Festival yep.
1: how do you and and your representation yeah um capitalize on this kind of success
4: uh, great question <laughs> um I think you know I think what's funny for me is you know from from sort of 2007, when I saw my first pilot, to 2014, like, I was working really hard in all the traditional yeah. ways that you break in. I mean, I, I wasn't an assistant, I, but it, because I just could sort of continued to develop, but I was, you know, pounding the pavement. I was writing scripts on spec. I was having generals, and uh, my brother-in-law calls it, you know, you put um, coats of paint on the wall, and you got to just keep painting. So <laughs> I was painting. I was <laughs> meeting with, you know, people and, and kind of just just felt like a hamster in a in a wheel. Yeah. Um, uh, my friend, we talk about it like it's like a like early Hollywood's like a, you're be, you're in a catapult, but you're just like spinning in place, like you don't have anywhere to go. And for me, so you know, I know this is an out of the box thing, but the ripcord of the catapult was Cruel Intentions the musical, mm-hmm. and and that was just something that just made just made me stand out a little bit. It was just something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And I'd already, at the time, like, m- my... Like, things were in... Like, I was writing a pilot for MTV at the time when I was doing Cruel Musical, so it felt like there was just a convergence of sort of all the traditional work that I'd done, of pitching yeah. projects, meeting with executives, and then something to just put me on people's radar in a different way mm-hmm. that kind of became, like, a perfect storm that allowed me to Allowed things to, to to be rolling. So since since then, um, development-wise, it's 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 been fun. You know, being able, like we were talking about earlier, to kind of pick the projects I want to do, and and have been really fortunate to be steadily, um, you know, setting up projects yeah. and continuing on that. It makes
1: a lot of sense. Ah. And I wanted to follow up on one thing. Yeah. Uh, you now have caveats to the say yes to yeah. any meeting. Yes, I <laughs> do. What what are they?
4: Well I think I think that goes back to when we were talking about just being exhausted. I think that there 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 is a moment when you start to you know, I, I think but Okay, I think that um, the reason you say yes to any meeting is because you never know what's going to come out of, out of it. And I can do breadcrumbs back, like projects I'm working on mm-hmm. and love that came from like a meeting with this person and then mm-hmm. I met, like was out randomly at night and it's like, oh, you just met with my friend. And you, and you can like, do these crazy breadcrumbs yeah. back to like, if I didn't take that one meeting, yeah. I wouldn't be doing this. But then you get to a point where sometimes I feel like, you know, I mean, like you get to an always take the meeting situation where like I know I'm unavailable and, you know, sitting down with someone, uh, executive for an hour, and talking about all the things they're gonna get excited about and me then being like I'll see you in 2020 like that's not cool. Right. So they're, they're the caveats to always take the meeting is to know your bandwidth to mm-hmm. know what you can and cannot do. but I stand by it as advice of like you never know where a connection is gonna come from like even what you were saying about the assistants in the writers room like I, our assistants on Zoe are incredible and like you just don't you don't know where mm-hmm. the person you know the person sitting next to you at, at the concert you like like that could be the creative executive you work on your next mm-hmm. you know project with. Um, and, and part of
1: that, I think, and we talk about this every once in a while, is networking. Yeah. Um, and this has become, a, a think, a, I think, a more positive word uh, in the past four months or so since the uh, WGAATA stuff happened that writers are really, you know looking out for each other. I feel like the community has grown uh, smaller and closer in a lot of good ways, and bigger and closer in a lot of good ways. Um, But uh, Nichelle, I was curious from you specifically, as you're coming up, which was a much more traditional route Mm -hmm. from going from show to show, um, what part of the, what were the challenges to the non-writing parts of the job? Uh, whether it was, you know, Justified was, it seemed like a great room. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I talked great to those guys room. a number of times. Mm-hmm. Um, Good Wife was an entirely different situation mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of great people, but mm-hmm. I think a tougher room, it sounds like. No. No? No. <laughs> tell, me, tell me about no. when, what um, was your job Those there? were
2: both really great rooms. And I stayed at Good Wife the longest. I was there mm-hmm. uh, four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my favorite room. What was it about it? It was a show that I was I was a fan of the show mm-hmm. before I went on the show. I had a tremendous amount of respect for Robert and Michelle King, mm-hmm. and then they had put together a really impressive room full of grownups. Yeah, and everybody worked really hard, and it was a small room for twenty two episodes, but it was a group of really smart people, really kind people, and um, we kept each other entertained and everybody respected the show Mm -hmm. and so we're all still friends i um saw the kings just recently they're in new york now and um i had a project that i was trying to break and i called two of the good wife writers and we spent a sunday they were trying to help me get through a story so um and the justified room was great filled with great storytellers still you know good friends with them but yeah good wife was my favorite room
1: (laughs) what did you learn from that room that you took to your next show running jobs
2: um, I think that that the kings the kings are. Sort of aristocratic. That's mm-hmm. like a that's a fond word that I have for them. And so that they, they put um, they put together a very mm-hmm. respectful environment, and that's huge to me. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm not interested in a room where people feel like they can't be themselves, that they cannot talk, that they'll be made fun of, mm-hmm. that they'll be attacked in any way. No eye rolling, none of that. I'm not a fan. I have zero patience for it. Mm-hmm. And to be able to do a Really good show, well-received show, and not have to um, deal with that. Like the idea that to get something good, you have to be abusive and people have to be in pain. That hasn't interested me ever in my life. Have you ever had to work in one of those rooms?
1: Yes. Really? Mm -hmm. How did you deal with it? I mean, you must have been like a a young writer, too. Mm -hmm. How did you Uh, deal with that?
2: I dealt with it. (laughs) Yeah, I dealt with it and just There's knew. A device. Yeah, and I dealt with
0: it.
4: there was a device. <laughs> there, was, there was a serious device. Well, the <laughs> we're there. We did.
2: But you just um, basically you decide if you're going to take any of that to the next job, mm-hmm. and that was the biggest thing. It was just like no. This isn't Mm -hmm. I'm not going to take this energy or this practice anywhere I go. And I'm not going to going to inflict this on anyone that I'm working with. And, you know, everybody has bad days and they fail. But my that's not my intention. When I wake up,
1: Um, your husband was in here earlier, Uh, your husband, Malcolm, Mm -hmm. who said he but he comes to you for advice. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you're both showrunners and Mm -hmm. you do you collaborate a lot. Mm -hmm. It seems like both in at Mm -hmm. work Mm -hmm. and the work comes home, too. Right. Right. Tell me about teaching him. (laughs) (laughs) Can you teach Malcolm anything? (laughs) Can
2: you? (laughs) No, Malcolm's awesome. He's the. He's incredibly generous. He does not have a lot of time, mm-hmm. but the time that he has left over, he gives to other people. And so I get a little bit more protective. I don't do a mm-hmm. lot of networking. I don't. I rarely do these interviews. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> what I heard. Thank you. And I, um, you know, just I'm very protective of my time just because of my creative space and the mm-hmm. way that I function. And um, Little bit of a hermit. But Malcolm will this wake up. is inspiring up. to me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is all okay. <laughs> it's okay.
2: <laughs> but Malcolm will wake up at seven thirty on a Saturday and go sit with a young writer over coffee right. and he has, you know, um a script due or pages due or something, but he makes the time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's what I learned from him. It's like my default no for work is also a default no <laughs> for other things. And it's easy and, to fall into that. Yes it is. For
1: sure. Yeah. Like I think a lot of us like naturally sway that way like some of us had to start a podcast so we could talk to other people
3: (laughs) and i think that the on the subject of networking because it's something i think about a lot because if you think about the the spaces even for the most open-minded well-intentioned people if you think about the spaces that we tend to gravitate towards for networking um and it's a conversation i've been having with other people in the guild um they're not really conducive for certain types of people. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and not right. just on the introversion, extro- extroversion spectrum, but also, you know, I know a, a, a deaf writer who's brilliant, who should be on, like, four different shows and has an amazing personal background. But, yeah. you know, the best way to access... Everything she has to offer is to meet her one on one, rather than find a dimly lit bar mm-hmm. with a crowd and no interpreter or anything. Yeah, you know, no no one to to be a, a facilitator. Um, and we put so much we put so so much emphasis on what someone is like in the the networking social aspects of the job, which is an important part of it because the room is a social organism. Mm-hmm. But you really want someone that's got like a different slant on all this yeah. stuff. You I. I'm really disinterested in working in a room of like nine really awesome, slick social operators, you know, for nine months. Um, yeah. I kind of gravitate towards voices that would not typically be coming forward. And I think the room, through through no malicious intent, the the, the industry is designed in a way that sort of alienates certain types of people and bodies um, yeah. to the you know detriment of. Cool stories.
1: Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. Uh, Lindsay, were you gonna jump in on that?
4: Yeah, no, I was just gonna say, I mean I, I feel like, you know, just a few weeks into my first writer's room, the idea of just being good in a room, I didn't really even understand that until now. And yes, of course you want like you want people you wanna spend, you know, ten hours a day with five days a week, but the idea that someone would just be like fun to hang out with and that would be like the primary, <laughs> you know, reason to put them in a room. Like I didn't really fully understand that. Um and I and I, I hear loud and clear what you're saying that I think sometimes someone that might be the best writer isn't isn't like maybe they're not gonna get the access because they're not you know good at networking in a bar mm-hmm. but it made me think to that end like I'm, I'm I've i learned also just as a human functioning the world that sometimes I need, just need to like protect myself and my mm-hmm. energy and sometimes social situations are just a lot mm-hmm. and I find as much I think writer friends are the most important thing and the person that you can lean on but sometimes I find myself like I'll go to a panel at the writers guild and I'm so excited to be there mm-hmm. and you're sitting in a room with 200 people in the guild and I always am overcome with the feeling like fuck like they're all doing the same thing Mm -hmm. I'm doing like we're in effect like competing with each other for the same right staff job or this and it it can be like emotionally overwhelming for me in a way where I'll like spin out for a few days where I'm like what am I doing you know and so sometimes I think um, yes if if there's something a networking event you want to go to or a panel you want to see but just also to say out loud you especially with all that rejection that you're getting like sometimes being around a lot of other writers who are oh I sold this and I did that and then it just makes you feel bad like even even sometimes if I could if if I could make someone Else feel bad and and throw out you know whatever I'm doing. I but feel I don't... terrible. So. <laughs> no, so you don't want you don't want to, like there you know it goes both ways. You don't yeah. you don't want a, a... Feel bad yeah. that you're not measuring up to someone else. I, you don't want to put it out there to yeah. make some, so. I think there's just a lot of um, again all that emotional stuff that you, you don't hear about as much um, operating in networking spaces or mm-hmm. and I think something that you just spaces. that you
3: just touched on that is super important for people in film school because I'm thinking back to when when I was in film school, we were all writers hanging out with other writers, mm-hmm. and then you get out of film school and it's like I got to look for my first new thing. I you know in my case I was looking at a, for assistant jobs right, um, and the trick is. You want to be building a network if you're in film school and you're a writer, building a network with the producing and directing <laughs> students because they're the ones that are going to want to team up on something immediately following school. It's not going to be other Smart. writers that because mm-hmm. people do, at that stage, people don't even like to work in writing teams because yeah. they all want it's an ego thing. Really, <laughs> we know we want to get our own work out there. Um, so. I think, it's, I think it's savvier to, to link up with someone that's got a different sort of skill set, but also has a similar kind of objective.
1: Yeah, that's uh, great advice, uh, especially, yeah, for the, the student mm-hmm. listeners uh, right now. Um, we do need to start to wrap up. Um, I want to ask you all what you are watching on television these days. What is getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your room, your loved ones, your friends? Um, and Lindsay, let's start with you.
4: Oh, gosh. I literally I like have a list. There's so many good shows out. I really oh. have a list on my phone. I'm like shows I like. Um, one thing I'm looking for, this might be out by the time this comes out, but I'm really excited for the Veronica Mars reboot. Yeah. I've been a marshmallow from the beginning, so I'm h- highly anticipating that. Um, I just binged all of Stranger Things 3, which mm-hmm. I watched in like a day and felt was just in the best way, like popcorn TV. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think maybe Russian Doll might be the last thing recently yeah. that just really like. I was like, ah, oh, fuck. Oh, yeah. I would be uh, bereft if I did not say, "Flea Bag." Flea Bag season two is one of the most brilliant things yeah. I've ever, ever. I think seen.
1: that's when I yeah. asked the question. It's yeah. implied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just everyone
4: will Flea Bag. Okay,
1: yeah. Uh, but yeah, we don't talk about Russian Doll a lot, and it's so great, so
4: great, so yeah. great. And I love the story of it. I don't, I don't want to like misrepresent it because, mm-hmm. but like that it went through all this develop. There was lots of development of it. Oh, and I don't it, know. often. Yeah, maybe it. Google that. I mean, but it, you know, there's a, lo- there's a lot of development and not giving up, and you know, it had big auspices behind it also um, but still took a long time to get it made and made right which you know gives me hope for the things I've been (laughs) (laughs) trying to do for years now.
3: Absolutely. Good answers. David? Um, I'm super into Barry. Mm -hmm. I think it's just super smart. It's great. I love (laughs) that it's sort of, you know, we talked very briefly at the beginning of this about this sort of person, the branding of comedy and and drama, and I've always been really resistant to it, and I feel like TV is catching up to this idea that you can be both at the same time. Finally. In half an hour. It's amazing how many buttons that show hits in half an hour. I think the writing is great. The performances are great. Um, I also <laughs> I watch a lot of true crime stuff, and so now I'm sort of you know <laughs> I feel I like, feel bad about it. <laughs> it. Um, in, in my defense, some of it was you know helpful for work last year on the Rookie. <laughs> sure. but, but at the same time, the Rookie wasn't a show that investigated crime So I would come in with something I saw on Forensic Files, and they'd be like, Yeah, we don't really.
0: <laughs> I mean, they're patrol
3: cops; they're not going you know,
0: <laughs> to swab anything. So <laughs> this guy walks
3: looking handsome and being charming. That's yeah. our show. <laughs> so. Um, and I, I, I'm watching Deadwood for the first time, so I know I'm oh, no like, super behind on that, but I'm really enjoying it. Uh, so.
1: How deep in are you and how are you I'm enjoying it? Se-
3: I'm halfway through season one. Oh, okay. Um, and part of it was because um, I had seen the first two seasons of The Wire, mm-hmm. and then I got kind of shaky on the second season and people kept saying it's amazing and I kept hearing about The Wire all the time so I finished it and it is <laughs> I,
0: mean, I want to talk
3: about it with everyone and it, it's like That's we saw so that funny. 15 years ago Yeah. Um, so I, I, f- I thought well what else was I not watching in the 90s I feel uh, the
4: same way my husband and I just did a full series rewatch of Six Feet Under mm-hmm. which I had seen before so it was a second and now I just want to talk about it with everybody <laughs> yeah, and everyone's yeah. like that one's it's not current. Yeah. this it's is where what we are thing? now yeah. like,
1: everything's available it's true. Yeah. my wife somehow yeah. I don't know she was in a coma in the 90s and she had never seen Friends. Oh, wow. And she watched all of Friends a couple years ago and was like, can you guys believe Monica and Chandler got together? I think, yeah, we can believe it. Uh, anyway, Nichelle, what are you watching?
2: Um, Fleabag was amazing. I'd seen the first season and then I ended up watching the second season twice. Yep. Um, I just thought it was so perfect. Just yeah just perfection. And then it was kind of interesting to watch three series that all were dealing with grief one way mm. or another. And mm. I thought we've kind of moved into an interesting time where that's not handled in such a modeling way. It's kind of messy and all over the place yeah. like grief really is. So I watched Fleabag, which I thought was a show, you know, obviously about grief and then, um, dead to me and then mm-hmm. afterlife
0: I don't know what that was.
2: Isn't that the name of it? The uh, Ricky Gervais. Oh, it was just like oh, five I mean, yeah, episodes, right. but yeah. that was kind of like I that little odd. And then um, so I just sort of did this little run of of these shows, and then of all, and then I love um, British cozy mysteries. So I, I benched Grantchester. <laughs> awesome, <laughs> yeah.
4: so good. Yeah. Dead to Me is so good. was a great story? So, so good. Yeah.
1: Um, but I think that that thing you're talking about, you know, showing the reality mm-hmm. of these very big emotions or big mm-hmm. situations is sort of gets back to what you were talking about too david is like shows don't have to be one thing anymore right yeah. i think we're finally catching up with this yeah. idea that you know drama and comedy and even genre like they they can all go together mm-hmm. now and it it feels very freeing as a writer certainly mm-hmm. um listen you're all doing good work uh thank you for being thank here you. This was thank you thank you so much thanks this was great thank you for listening to the writers panel Tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe and review The Writer's Panel on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. And let me know who you want to have on the show. The Writer's Panel is a co-production of the Forever Dog Podcast Network and the ATX Television Festival. You can listen to more Forever Dog podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com. And keep up with the ATX Fest throughout the year at ATXFestival.com. Thank you, and see you next week. Well, you'll hear me next week. Thanks for subscribing. Forever Dog. This has
3: been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Engineered and mastered by Alex Sarchet.